Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. So welcome to our second session of our new series, Straight to the Heart, Guarding the Well Spring of Life. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Simon talk about the emotional God. And he taught us that God has emotions, and because we are made in the image of God, we have emotions. Um, and then he gave us permission to feel, which set me up so nicely because um, our, my sermon is entitled Permission to Feel. So as we start, I'd like you to meet, uh, or quickly just look at one or two people around you, and I want you to ask them uh, this, oh, the question isn't up there, but the question is this, what is the difference between thinking and feeling? between cognition and emotion. You've got two minutes. Ask one or two people around you, what is the difference? Great. You've got 30 seconds. <laughs> wow. Okay, I could see some of you were really getting into it, and there was a whole lot of buzz happening in the room. Now, do you know that there is actually science behind emotions? <laughs> theories, okay? And so the science basically says this. It says that something is happening in our environment, okay? An environment could be external, internal. There's something happening. So for example, the second I said you need to turn to one or two people, some of you were already catching feelings. You were feeling some kind of way because your environment, something was happening and you weren't sure about it. Um, and so what happens is when that something happens in the environment, external or internal, one of the theories suggests that at that point, our body starts reacting. So think about just what I said. <gasps> I'm going to answer the question wrong. I have to talk to somebody, what? That's happening in your body, right? There's a body sensation. And that physiological stimulation then sends, triggers some stuff in your brain, and then you feel the emotion. So that's what one of the theories says. Another theory says that as that external stimulation happens, uh, both things happen at once. There's physiological stuff and emotional stuff. But there's a social psychologist called Robert Zajonkt, and he proposes a theory called facial efference. <laughs> It just means difference, facial difference. And what he suggests is that emotions activate our autonomic nervous system. That's the part of you that means you don't have to keep saying to yourself every two minutes, breathe, breathe. <laughs> it's the bit that just keeps your heart beating and your lungs working without you thinking about it, okay? So what he says is that external stimulation triggers that system, and then what happens is we start making facial expressions. Now think about the bouquet of emojis on your phone. 
emotions have a physical reality to them, right? We pull a face. And whatever that facial thing in then triggers certain aspects of our brain. And in our brain, the brain starts working out. It starts assessing and appraising, and then it tells us the feeling that we're feeling. Okay. So a couple of things that we're learning from this is emotion comes from somewhere. Something is happening. Something in our environment is occurring, and then we're feeling some kind of way because of it. The second thing it is proving to us is that emotion happens in the brain. What this is telling us is that thoughts and feelings are way more intimately linked than we could ever have imagined. You cannot have the one without the other. And so they might be very, very similar. Obviously, in our understanding of language, they mean different things. But in our experience of them, they do not. If you start thinking something, you're going to feel it. Like, what is this pastor making me do, talking to people? And then you, you start feeling that. You know? If you start feeling things, you're going to add thoughts to it. And so the real issue is how are we perceiving what's happening? What, how are we processing what's happening? Okay. So emotion happens in the brain. Now, I only learned this this week as I was researching, but the ancient Hebrews had no concept of the brain as a body part. I think autopsies are forbidden in the Old Testament. <laughs> Messing around with dead bodies definitely is. So, they, so because of that, there actually isn't a word for brain in the ancient Hebrew. Because they didn't need one, right? But they understood that the heart was the organ that sustained life. Um, in the Old Testament, Abigail's very foolish husband, Nabal, uh, dies of a heart attack. He has a heart attack, and 10 days later, he dies. So they understood the heart as a physical body part that sustained life. And so the word heart, um, the word most commonly translated as heart in our Bibles, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is levav. And it is shortened to live. And it's very interesting because the ancient Israelites thought that all human intellectual activity takes place in the heart. So, for example, the Bible tells us that you know in your heart that you understand and make connections in your heart. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom dwells in your heart. Your heart is what you use to discern between truth and error, like King Solomon did. The heart is where you think and make sense of the world. The heart is also where you feel your emotions. Hannah felt the pain of her childlessness in her heart. And in fact, the very phrase brokenhearted comes from the Bible. When somebody said to you, I'm, my boyfriend dumped me, I'm so brokenhearted. You're literally quoting Psalm 34, verse 18, which says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. <laughs> Have mercy on them, shame. So biblically, the heart is the center of all parts of human existence. It is the center of both your intellectual and emotional capacity. So every time you read the word heart in your Bible, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it is speaking to you about the totality of your, your human beingness. It includes your thoughts and rationality as well as your feelings and emotions. 
And so we do this weird Western thing in our modern world, this Greco-Roman thing, where we think rationality is king and all emotionality is nonsense, you know? Um, like one plus one will always be two, right? But how do you feel about two? So one of my favorite little jokes about um, psychotherapy is a, a young man sitting in a counselor's office and, the counselor, and he says to the counselor, I don't understand why I have this irrational fear of the number three. And then you see a little bubble in the recesses of his brain. There's a picture of his mother going, I'm going to count to three. <laughs> so you see when I... So, so we need to understand they function together the whole way through. And so we're going to read a very well-known text of Scripture together now, and let's see what it teaches us about our heart. Proverbs 4, verse 20 to 27, and I'm going to be reading from the New English Translation. And just before we get there, um, chapter 4 of Proverbs is comprised of a few different poems. And these poems are wise words from a father. In your version of the Bible, there'll be something that talks about a father's wisdom or wise words from a father or something like that. It's a father talking to his son, to his children. And this poem falls right into that. Starting at verse 20, it says, My child, pay attention to my words. Listen attentively to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Guard them within your For they are life to those who find them and healing to one's entire body. Guard your with all vigilance, for from it are the sources of life. Remove perverse speech from your mouth. Keep devious talk from your lips. Let your eyes look directly in front of you and let your gaze look straight before you. Make the path for your feet level so that all your ways may be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn yourself away from evil. And so the motif in this, poetry, in this short poem is the physical body, is the human body. And the author is using all the body parts in a way that teaches us that our full physical being needs to come in line with the path of righteousness. He tells us to listen and pay attention. That's our ears, right? He, he talks about our sight, our eyes. He talks about our physical heart, and we now know that that's the center of our full humanity. He talks about our speech, that's our mouth and lips. He talks about our walking, that is our feet. Our whole physical body must be devoted to the righteous path. And then he says in verse 22, he says, if you listen attentively and play, pay close attention to the words of the Father, if you bring your physical body into alignment with the way of righteousness, there is a healing for your entire body. Your entire life will be impacted positively. So again, we have this dissonance between Western thought and original biblical thought. Because... We think that believing in Jesus Christ is an ideological, philosophical thing because it's in the brain, right? <laughs> so obviously, there is that kind of consent and that kind of agreement. But the problem is, is that in our Western thinking, we can hold an ideology but practice something completely different. Recycling. <laughs> we all hate plastic until it's the most convenient moment of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't always put plastic in the recycling. So there's an ideological 
dissonance with how we behave. And unfortunately, that's what we can do with Christianity. Because we've made mental assent, we think we're obeying. To the Hebrew, your body proved your belief. That's what this poem is talking about. If you truly believe, then you will think, feel, and act in absolute accordance with that. And for them, until your body became part of the obedience, you weren't obedient. Hold that for a minute. So this is the context that this poem is coming in. Our, our full humanness, everything we are needs to align for us to walk in righteousness. And then there is healing. Now, as I was preparing this poem, and it's so funny because none of the commentators saw this, record, uh, but I think it's just because I'm focusing on the one scripture. But there's eight lines in this poem, right? And almost slap bang right in the middle, almost in the heart of this poem is verse 23. Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the sources of light. Right at the heart of this poem, it tells us to guard our hearts. And just to really hammer all of this home, I'm going to quote something from a theologian called Derek Kidner. And he says this, In Hebrew thought and psychology, all life emerges out of the heart. As it is a combination of the way you think and feel, it leads to the volition of what you are doing, including the basic commitment you have in life and the decisions you make in life. All of this is the heart. And so verse Three again says, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it are the sources of life. This scripture literally assumes, just takes for granted, that something is flowing out of your heart. That in fact, something is flowing out of every single human heart you encounter. There is something flowing out. And it calls the something the sources of of life. If you look in other translations, it will say things like the springs of life or the issues of life. And that Hebrew word translated as sources of life literally means outgoings. It is the origin of your life. It's the origin of what you are. And as I've said, every single heart is flowing with something. But the question is, what is it flowing with? And so, there are two important questions we have to ask this verse if we're going to understand it. And the first one is, why should we guard our heart? And the second one is, how do we guard our heart? So this test is really easy. The answer is already in the verse. Why should we guard our heart? Because from it flow the issues of life. For the, our sources of life come from the heart. You see, an unguarded heart is unexamined and it is unins uninspected. That makes it an unreliable heart because we don't know what it contains. An, an unguarded heart means that we are not at all aware of what we are generating within ourselves that is now flowing into our life, into our circumstances, and then into the world. Mark 7, verse 15 and 21 and 23 say this, There is nothing outside a man that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, sorry, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So I grew up Baptist, and I was taught from a very young age, you guard your eye gates, and you guard your ear gates, and you guard your heart gates. I'm sure there's a song that traumatized me, so I've forgotten it. But <laughs> we've all heard that, right? Now, there's, there's wisdom in that, because if I'm looking at bad things, if I'm listening to bad things all the time, it's going to affect my expectation, it's going to affect my heart, there is going to be a consequence. And Philippians 4 verse 8 actually commands us to focus on things that are pure, lovely, and worthy of praise. So, th so this isn't wrong, but what we think it means is wrong. <laughs> because Jesus is making it very clear that it is not what goes into a man that defiles him, but rather what comes out of him. So let's use gossip as an example Mm. Yeah, so verse 24 in our text actually, actually says this. It says, remove perverse speech from your mouth, keep devious talk from your lips. So listening to gossip is bad, right? I know it's bad. I must not listen to gossip. But if I find myself listening to gossip, I need to start asking some questions about what is happening inside my heart. Is there judgment against that person in my heart already? Am I jealous of that person? Is there something about them or their life that I'm coveting? See, that's a Ten Commandments sin right there. What if I'm really addicted to other people's drama so I never have to deal with my own? Now, I've definitely been in that category. Do you see what, what Jesus is telling us? The issue isn't the person coming with the gossip. The issue is how am I going to respond to it? And what's in my heart is going to come out. Now, now, you get, now let's get back to the ideological problem. We all agreed gossip was wrong. We've all listened to it. Maybe we've all done it. Because we can stop watching and stop listening. But if we will not guard our own heart, if we will not explore and examine what is actually inside of us, how will we ever get free of judgment? How will we understand that what God has given us is as valuable as what he's given to anybody else so there's no more jealousy and covetousness? How will we deal with the own drama we are generating within our hearts? And this is what Jesus is saying. So you can switch off all Netflix, never look at Instagram, and you can still find yourself in patterns of sin. Because the outside isn't the issue, it's what's inside. Now let's look at Jesus. <laughs> now, now let's look at Jesus. The elite, the religious elite of Jesus' time called him. They said this to him, you're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, in our modern, there's actually a couple of worship songs that we sing, you're a friend to sinners, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. It is worshipful. But when they said it to him, they were literally cursing him. They were shaming him. They were saying, you are as bad as the people you hang out with. You are a sinner. And the Bible is very clear. Jesus was tempted in every way. 
but without sin. Now, if Jesus was hanging out with the worst of society, maybe before Jesus, some of us were the worst of society. <laughs> Thank you for hanging out with us, Jesus. Um, if he was hanging out with the worst of society, I mean, I'm prostitutes, I'm going to just leave that there, right? That, this is who he's hanging out with. He must have seen some pretty awful things. He must have heard some pretty awful things. But because of what was in him, it didn't defile him. Now, Jesus was fully God and fully man, right? But when we see him in purity, it's not his godness, it's his humanity submitted to the Holy Spirit because he is the ultimate demonstration and example of what a human being looks like when we submit to the Spirit. So he would go into those places, but all he was there to do was to love them, to care for them, to show them God's mercy and healing, to, re to, to reveal the Father to them, to help them. And so his purity flowed out of him into them. Titus 1 verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. And so what is happening in your heart today? What is going on in your heart that you've left unguarded, that you haven't explored, you haven't inspected, and so you don't even know what's going on? And this is the problem. We can come to prayer meetings and worship. I have done this and think I'm right with God. But what is flowing out of my heart, nobody wants to be around. <laughs> and we want to get free. And so we have to guard our hearts. We must guard our hearts with diligence because from them flow the issues of life. What is your issue today? What is the issue you need help with? Well, go inside and explore it. Stop running away. Deal with your drama. Leave other people's drama to themselves. <laughs> Now, how do we guard our heart? The Hebrew word for guard is notzar, and it means to protect, maintain, preserve, and obey. Protect, maintain, preserve, and obey. Now, what I found really interesting as I was looking at this, protect is definitely about keeping things out, right? But maintain, preserve, and obey are all about what's going on in there already. Something has to exist for you to preserve or maintain it. And what are you obeying if it isn't in there already? So one-fourth of Natsar is keeping things out. <laughs> Three-quarters is about dealing with what's there already. <laughs> so if you look up this word in, in Strong's Concordance, it's got a beautiful little metaphorical picture to it. And that picture is a prison guard, okay, who's well-armed and uh, very determined and he's very diligent and conscientious and careful to watch over locked gates, okay? He's someone who's making sure that nothing bad gets in and no one bad gets out. <laughs> he, it's his prison and he's responsible, so he's making sure it's locked and it's loaded, okay? So that's protection. So we should be that ruthless with protecting our hearts, okay? But at the same time, there's work for us to do now. It's a command, right? Verse 23 of chapter 4 of Proverbs. It's a straight-up command. Guard what? Whose heart is it? Who does the guarding? Let's say that again. Some of you weren't sure. Whose heart is it? Who does the guarding? 
This is so, so important. Why is it your heart? Because on the day you were created, God joyfully and pride, full of pride, came to you and said, here's your life. It's your life. What are you going to do with it? We are the most responsible for our own lives. God has limited himself. You all know it's true. As Simon said earlier, we're not going to put hands up. Who sinned? Did lightning come out the stri and stri strike you dead? Apparently not, because we're all sitting here. So you know that you have free choice. You can completely contradict God if you want to. Do you see what I'm saying? That's not God's business. It's not God's fault. It's not his responsibility. Like I said, you were born. He said, here is your life. It's yours with so much love and joy. You look after it. So it's your heart, but you see the problem is, is you are responsible for guarding it. So recently, I'm, I was talking to a young man. I'm, I'm the counseling pastor in the church, and I do this a lot. And as we were talking, we realized there were some issues in his, in his life, and we started sort of outlining those issues, and I started helping go, okay, these are things you need to talk about, but I think you need to see a professional. Turned out where he works, they actually employ professional Psychologist, imagine that, Pastor Lindy. Doesn't the world need more places like that? And it was free. He could just make an appointment and go. So he said he was going to do that. I realized I hadn't checked up with him. When I followed up with him, I said, how did it go? He said, it was so amazing. Um, I got a young male counselor, and he was, we just connected. He was so helpful. I didn't talk about the issues because there was something presenting, but it was so helpful. Uh, he really helped me. I could apply things. I was like, man, that's awesome. That is so amazing. When I, have you made a follow-up appointment? And he said this to me. He said, I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit to prompt me to go to counseling. Some of you are not getting the problem. <laughs> because it sounds holy, right? I said something to him that I've never phrased in this way before. I, I said to him, listen, it's not the Holy Spirit's job to prompt you to go to counseling. It's the Holy Spirit's job to reveal Jesus to you. It's your job. When you find a counselor you have chemistry with who's actually helping you, who actually helps you apply your life, you better make all the appointments you need to make to sort out your stuff. Because you are responsible. And of course, the Holy Spirit helps. God helps us. He is a present help in time of need. But we are responsible. You know, there's this thing that happens with us as human beings. It happens sometimes in, in a healing. It happens sometimes in professional counseling. You start talking about something that's bothered you for 92 years, and you feel better. Now, that is a bad moment for us as humans, because then what do we do? Ah, and we just carry on with our lives, and nothing's changed, and we haven't dealt with anything. And that is not the Holy Spirit's responsibility. Go and deal, says Pastor Simon. And while we're on this, seeking professional help and medical help, oh dear church, <laughs> we need it. We need it. There is no lack of faith. Let me help you. Paul Man Waring, who's, who's been to our church many times, he was a leader in Bethel, now he's heading up a movement in Europe that is doing amazing things and seeing so much salvation. He has an amazing testimony of being healed from cancer through three operations and chemotherapy. He wrote a book about it. That's how much of a testimony it is. You see, if you're going to do anything in life, you better have faith behind it. Anything. If you're going to take medication, you better have faith. And he says in that book, there are no second-hand miracles. 
Why do you think science has evolved to save human lives? Because God wants to save human lives. He wants to prolong life so people might actually come to know Him. None of you are judging me as I stand up here in my glasses. Well, maybe you are, but, that, but now you know what's happening inside you, right. Um, this is medical assistance. When I take it off, I can see the end of the room. I'm not going to fall over things. But Lurekos just in beautiful soft focus. Anything after this row, you might as well all be one person because <laughs> I cannot distinguish. So I've got a, a condition called keratoconus. It means my cornea, it's quite common. My corneas are go, have started going cone-shaped, so there's multiple astigmatism. So eventually glasses are useless because what are you treating? I mean, I had to do a procedure called corneal cross-linking, and they scrape off the top layer of your cornea. Yes, it's, it is as painful as you're imagining. And then they sunburn it. They force your eye open, and you sit under like a radio thing that sunburns your eye. It's a, it's a natural process that happens at life. The point is to thicken your cornea so that it doesn't split. But it doesn't fix the issue. But guess what does? And every time I get new glasses, I see better and better. I'm praying for my eyes. I've gone back to the guy and he said, oh wow, you've got 5% in the sign, 6% in that, they're better, that's unusual. Well, why is that unusual? Because I have God in my life. I, I should be wearing hard contact lenses, they're just very difficult, but my optician is helping me with it. When I put those contact lenses in, I get 95% vision. I'm going to see better in my 80s than I did in my 20s. So let me help you. Get the help you need. Do whatever it takes. Let me also give you some advice. Your GP, your local little doctor, is trained to assess mental health issues. Fatigue, stress, anxiety, depression, they can assess you, and then they can prescribe mild, short-term medication. No problem with medical aid. They can do it. Doctors came to me after the first morning. They said, thank you for sharing this. They said, yes, that's what we do. I have sent four people to their GPs, and they've been assessed in various things. They've taken their short-term medication. Gloria's nodding her head because she knows some of them. They come back to us. We can now they're not overwhelmed anymore. Now they're not freaked out anymore. Now suddenly we are able to help them with the issues of their life because they can process it now. So church, can we please stop this nonsense where we demonize psychology and medication? We're done with that. Yes, and can we begin to praise God for the wonders He is doing in the earth? So that is all about protection. That's how you protect your heart, all of that. So how do we maintain, preserve, and obey? Well, the old-fashioned word for that is spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. You've heard that term, right? And spiritual disciplines predominantly revolve around reading the Word of God, the Word of God, and prayer. Spiritual discipline just means knowing Jesus. Okay? So 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, when I said the word rebuke, some of you had that facial efference. There was like something happening. <laughs> Let, let's just get over this. What does rebuke mean? It means don't touch the hot plate. Don't run in the traffic. Don't take all that cocaine because you'll die. It's, that's what a rebuke is. Um, 
That's it. You've all done that to your children. You've done that to some grown-ups, you know. You didn't stop loving them. You weren't angry with them. You didn't hate them. That's a rebuke. So can we get over that now as well? God does rebuke us. Stop doing that. So let's talk about this. It's good for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. When we read our Bible, that's what we should be looking for. First and foremost, we should be looking for Jesus. Why do I read my Bible? Because he's in there. If I want relationship with him, if I want to know how good and kind he is, I better be reading my Bible. But while I'm finding him, let's look for some teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. So how would that work? I thought I knew something, but then I read my Bible, and it taught me what it really was. I was thinking like this, but then I read the Bible, and it corrected my thinking. I thought I was right, but I was wrong. I didn't have a clue what to do, and then the Bible trained me. That's how we maintain, preserve, and obey. And then we're moving from ideology and philosophy, and we're practicing. Then we're moving from just believing, and then we're actually living it. And the ultimate, 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 oh goodness, is this, yes, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Who wants rest? Who wants peace? Oh, Jesus. But can you see there is a condition in verse 29 there, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For every promise in the New Testament, there is a condition. And the condition isn't effort. It's not my dead works. The condition is relationship. And so what is relationship here? Jesus says, take my yoke on you. What is that yoke? Dealing with your own life. That yoke is taking responsibility. Lord, I gossiped because I wanted to. I wanted to hurt somebody. I wanted to feel important. And I'm sorry. That's not who I want to be. I want to be like you and learn from me. That's relationship. That's all it is. And we, we get better. You've seen me play the harp. I've been playing the harp for about 17 years now. That's how long it took to get that good, and I'm not really that good. But the more I practice, the better I'll get. Learn from Jesus. That's how we get our peace. And we have to be responsible for our hearts. Whose heart is it? Who is responsible for guarding it? And Jesus will help you in this way. So Father, we bring our hearts before you. And God, we want, to, we want to repent first and all. If you know that you haven't explored your heart, that you don't know what's flowing out of you, if you do know what's flowing out of you and it's not good, just repent for a moment. He's so kind. He's so gracious. Lord, show us what's in our hearts. We want to see what you see. And then help us, Lord. Help us to guard it. Help us to maintain, preserve, and obey, Lord Jesus. 
God, where the issues of our life are so overwhelming right now, and I want to pray for people who are feeling overwhelmed, for people who are so stressed, for people who have anxiety, who are literally in depression, who are bipolar, whatever your mental health issue is now, Lord, we bring these people before you. You see us. You know us. This scripture is for you. We can cast all our anxieties on you because you care for us, Lord, and we are grateful. God, we're not going to do it alone anymore. We're going to do our part, and we're going to trust you to give us strength to do your part, Lord. God, if we need to go seek counselors, lead us to the right counselor. If we need medication, God, give us the grace and the finances to get the medication. But we're going to do what we need to do so you can do what you do, Lord. And God, I just release your love your love, your love, your love, your love, your unconditional love on every heart, every mind, every soul, every body, Lord. Let your healing flow. Let your healing flow. Let your healing flow. In Jesus' name, amen.